If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. It would be easier to assume that before the invention of modern clocks, societies didn't have a very sophisticated sense of time. People rose with the sun and went to bed when it got dark. But according to Gillian Adler and Paul Strome, authors of a new book, All Thing Hath Time, medieval society's understandings of time were far more complex. Emily Briffitt spoke to them to find out more. We're here today to delve into the role that time played in medieval life and how it was understood. So your recent book is called All Thing Hath Time, Time and Medieval Life. So why did you decide to write this? seems to me one thing we might say about ourselves is that this is a COVID book. Uh, We started writing it uh, during lockdown. We benefited from the fact that Jillian is a maestro of the internet and was able to develop a lot of material that uh, I wasn't sure we were going to have access to. But it also emerges in that sense, I think all of us had, of time in the period of lockdown and time in the period of of COVID. And that is time passing at once very slowly, even dragging uh, on the one hand, but time racing by on the other. And this kind of duality in the sense of time is more than one thing. Time is fast and slow. Time is productive and unproductive. And uh, situating ourselves in time is harder than we thought. I think all this comes out in some ways of the COVID experience and uh, is part of the occasion of our book. Our book could be a kind of a rejoinder to COVID in a certain sense. Now, it's been said that before the invention of the modern watch and the modern clock, timekeeping was a little bit sketchy. So in your research, what have been some of the popular misconceptions that you have had to bust almost? So we wrote the book with the purpose of bringing this sophisticated sense of time in the Middle Ages to a broad readership. And one of the misconceptions that we wanted to dismantle was the idea that 
the sophisticated sense of time only came with a mechanical clock. And so we do this by exploring not just what the clock did, how the clock impacted civic life and daily schedules, but also we demonstrated multiple systems of timekeeping and the way in which medieval people were able to reconcile these different systems, um, to balance them. And so we studied other more intuitive systems of, of time management that were based on natural and seasonal change from calendars, which were very complex and numbering days as we do, but also recording feast days. Um, we studied the astrolab, uh, the canonical hours, and then also the mechanical clock. So we can go into greater detail about those, but that's just a broader overview. Yeah, I think the thing that interests us especially is that in the Middle Ages, they had multiple ways of telling time, uh, some kind of natural and based on you know, stars and moon and tides. And then the 13th and 14th centuries also see the invention of the mechanical clock. And what interests us is that medieval people operate in all these time systems at once. And in some ways, they had a more uh, complex and uh, sophisticated time system than our own just because of its multiplicity. So would you mind telling us a little bit about some of these timekeeping systems in the Middle Ages? People used burning candles, sundials, water clocks. Um, I, I mentioned uh, the astrolabe, which used celestial observations, which tracked the movements of the stars and the planets to tell time. But this device was also extremely versatile. It can be traced back to Greek antiquity and was developed further by Islamic specialists and then arrived in the medieval West and provided people with the ability to track the stars and planets, but also to explore the zodiac and to uh, track feast days. So this is one of these complex scientific instruments that provided people with different ways of, of keeping time. There were other systems, such as the church's liturgy, which divided the day into hours of prayer. Um, prayer, we tend to think, directs our attention to eternity, but it actually helped to schedule daily life. And bells were rung according to these canonical hours, which were not just uh, heard within the monastery walls, but also within towns. So I think it affected both lay life, the secular life, and the religious. And then on top of all these, you might say, natural systems, which tend to be circular and repetitive and seasonal and natural in their own right, here comes the mechanical clock, which is very linear, very straight ahead, uh, at least pretends to exactitude. I mean, the early clocks weren't perfect, but at least it's pretending to more exactitude in the measurement of time. So you both have these circular and traditional systems and these measured systems with the clock. And the clock uh, certainly didn't overwhelm the other systems, which remained in use, but it sprang into considerable prominence in the 14th century. And it's this collision is part of what drew us to the period and gave us the dates of our book. I think one of the the other misconceptions has to do with, with something Paul just said, which is that early clocks were faulty. And many of them, I mean, if we have the development of the mechanical clock toward the end of the 13th, early 14th century, um, the boom in urban clock installation, right, the, the, the appearance of clocks in towns didn't 
occur for another hundred years. So it, it took a long time for that equal hours system, um, for the impact of that escapement mechanism that helped to regulate time uh, to, to really take hold in cities. I think it was people's active decision to follow the clock rather than the clock itself that had the, the biggest impact. And they set their clocks with astrolabes. That is, astrolabes were actually more accurate than clocks. And so if your clock went off the beam, you'd go get an astrolabe to set it straight. Why didn't the clock immediately become this dominant system? Why is it, I guess, so important to put it in the picture with all of these other methods of timekeeping? Well, there is a tendency sometimes for, uh, not so much in, in recent years, but earlier his, histories of time would have the clock just blowing everything away. And the fact is that in the 15th century, churches all over England were installing sundials on their steeples. Astrolabes themselves flourished in the 15th century as in no previous century. So you've got all these different ways of keeping time at once. And so any... Uh, single or linear account of here comes the clock and everything else goes out the window uh, simply doesn't explain the complexity of the system. And uh, then we would go on to say the sophistication of the people employing these multiple systems all at once. I think also, you know, we have such a strong association of city life with clocks, with timekeeping and that sort of rush and the need to keep schedules and and count the hours and the minutes. But actually, in the Middle Ages, a lot of the earliest clocks came out of monasteries and abbeys. In England, in 1327, the abbot Richard of Wallingford, he developed one of the earliest clocks. And he recorded in his in his treatises um, sort of the, the details of the clock. He died and, and, and two other monks went on to develop it. The same thing happened at, at Wells Cathedral. And so we tend to associate the clock so much with, with secular life. But in fact, you had within the monastery both the canonical hours, which were variable, which would change based on the length of daylight, right, in, in winter versus summer. And then you had at the same time the equal hour system. So that's a good example, I think, of the simultaneity of variable time and invariable time. And how did people actually live with these varieties of time, the different methods? Well, one of my favorite illustrations of that is there's a, a celebrated mystic named Julian of Norwich in 14th century England who becomes a recluse and an anchorite, which means that she enters a small cell constructed for her adjacent to her parish church, uh, which she intends never to leave again in her life. And uh, she is of course in close touch with liturgical time and religious time because uh, there would have been an opening in her church which would have permitted her in the wall of her cell, which would have permitted her uh, to listen to and observe liturgical services. But at the same time, when she writes her memoirs, she also always knows what clock time it is. And that's because uh, in the city of Wells, there was a sophisticated and sonorous uh, clock in the cathedral steeple that she would have heard chime out the hours. So sitting there, even in her anchoress's cell, she's very aware of liturgical time as the liturgical day progresses, but she's also aware of clock time and knows just what time it is, uh, even though she has left the world. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search 
match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. We turn to a number of literary examples to, to explore this multiplicity as well. And I think in Chaucer's poetry, we find characters who are measuring their shadows, um, but they're also keeping track of the canonical hours. And so, you know, the, we find a recognition of measurable time in many forms. Chaucer does refer to clocks, but he's not so interested in this this precision and the accuracy of clocks um, as he is in characters marking the time and then thinking about you know, how that connects to to anxieties about time. I, I know it's a, a kind of modern idea, but the sort of proper ways of spending time. We see this in the Canterbury Tales when the host, Harry Bailey, who is, he calls himself the judge and the governor, but he's also the timekeeper, and he's trying to uh, get all of the, the pilgrims to tell their stories in a particular frame of time. He himself gives us all of these different metaphors of what happens when you waste time and how your your body grows moldy and sluggish um, and, and in fact uses a lot more time in, in Chaucer's characteristic irony. But, the, but these are some of the, the examples that we explored. So this is something very different from maybe our modern sense of time constantly moving forward. It's much more fluid to work around life as well. We discuss how time is linear and cyclical, um, how, for instance, the, the, the calendar makes the year seem as if it's progressing, but it's always recurring, right? It's always, there's always a cyclical return. But we also explore how medieval writers are interested in this kind of anachronistic, fluid time that mingles past present and future. Um, We see a lot of this in narrative where time is a kind of illusion constructed by by authors. In vision texts, which are extremely popular in late medieval literature from Dante to Christine de Pizan to to Chaucer, uh, we find characters interacting with figures from antiquity and scripture as well as their, their present world. But I also think, you know, in terms of the the fluidity of time, to go back to Julian of Norwich and and the religious life, there was a sense that 
prayer and the the this sort of the liturgical time, the recitation of services was a present time ceremony, but also a commemoration of sacred past events. And so it brought past time and present time together. The same thing with the reading of scripture and a practice called typology that brought the Old Testament and the New Testament together, right? That, That tried to reconcile these different books to make sense of of time in this really cosmological, this this larger scale. For instance, in, in typology, the uh, uh, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac and the crucifixion of Christ were regarded as separate in time. One is an Old Testament and one the other is a New Testament event, but they're also regarded as simultaneous. And so you get block book Bibles that will show you a picture of each or show them flanking each other. And the idea there is there is a level on which all differences of time are obliterated. One thing you mentioned there was about systems of time measurement being both linear and circular. Now, is this a matter of either or, or could you have both? So how did it work in that way? Very much both and. And I'd like to invite Jillian to say something about the Wells clock, because clocks were set up in such a way they're very elaborate instruments, some of the big cathedral clocks, and they were set up in such a way as to measure both circular time and linear time. But uh, that's something that uh, Jillian has gone into. I would encourage any listeners to take a look at the the Wells Cathedral clock. This is one of the earliest to survive, and it's an astronomical clock that represents the sun and the moon revolving around the Earth. So it's um, evoking the geocentric model of the universe. But we have both the mechanical functions and the astronomical. So there's an interest in the ages of the moon. Um, but then in, in other circles of the clock, we find the, the ability to track the minutes as well and to represent the 24-hour dial. So there you have that simultaneity within a single object. And of course, I, I mentioned the astrolab and the calendar, which often in these elaborate calendar pages and books of hours, you would have the zodiac referred to, the labors of the month which changed, right? Based on the month, there were different kind of agricultural forms of work. And then you had the actual calendar days and the feast days. So there was such a complexity um, that that people relied on to tell time. So Gillian, you mentioned there the zodiac and planetary systems. How important were these and what role did they play in medieval life? I'll just say really briefly that astronomy and astrology were two branches of star science and people were really interested in this scientific approach, but also in the way in which the conjunctions of planets and stars influenced human birth and personalities. And we find like Chaucer's Wife of Bath describing her ascendant in the Taurus. And and so there is an interest in in planetary time and the role that the skies had in determining human affairs. Um, So that that is a portion of our, our book. Beyond just simply calculating the hours and tracking these, how else was timekeeping important? Well, one of the things I'd like to talk about is the the whole issue of apportionment of time. That is, once you concede the importance of time, which they certainly did in the Middle Ages, uh, they were almost obsessed with time. Once you've conceded that, and once you come to understand time as important, the question of how you spend your time uh, becomes a major question. And the interesting thing in the Middle Ages is that 
that could be true in the sphere of economic life and business. That is, how do you spend your time for profit? How do you maximize your time in ways that would be familiar to us today? At the same time, uh, there's a concurrent interest in prayer time and devotional time. That is, how do you devote yourself to uh, living your life in a in a successful religious way that can promote your ultimate salvation. So no matter what segment of society we're looking at, whether we're looking at devotional people or whether we're looking at commercial people, there's an enormous sense of uh, time is yours, you need to spend it properly, you daren't waste it. And that goes all through the society. I think we sometimes think that's a modern trait, but it's very much a medieval trait as well. Right. I think time consciousness is always going to produce this sense of time running out. I would say that in particular, there were these positive associations between clockwork and human experience, but but more specifically the cardinal virtues, which has to do with the, the ethics that, that Paul is alluding to. In the 13th century, temperance became one of the most important cardinal virtues, and temperance was often personified as uh, a lady with a clock on her head. Well, we see her with the hourglass, and this has to do with the idea that the clock represents our ability to regulate ourselves, right, to, to, to discipline ourselves the way that a clock kind of ticks on a, on a regular measure. So I think today we are very conscious of making the most of our lives, making the most of our time and having done something good and positive with it. In the medieval period, how do people understand the human life cycle? Medieval people paid attention to the aging process and often created parallels between the human life and the ages of the world and revolutions within nature, the passage of the seasons. Um, there was Less attention, I think, to specific numerical birthdays and more to these phases of life. Um, there were varying paradigms of the life cycle. Uh, some divided the human life into four parts, into three, adolescence, maturity, and old age, for instance. But this is uh, probably more likely the way in which people would have kind of considered themselves in time. At the same time, the human life was schematized, and we've all, I think, heard of a trope called the ages of man, uh, which we also get, of course, with the character Jaques in Shakespeare, who gives a long speech that many people have read on the age or heard on the ages of man. Uh, one of the things uh, that uh, Jillian has pursued, and she's being modest about now, is she's constructed a sense in the Middle Ages of what the ages of women were understood to be. And I, I'd like to ask if she could say a thing or two about that. Sure. I think women, at least in secular life, their ages were defined according to their marriageability. So you had this, this triad model of the, the virgin, the wife, and the widow. And in ways, this 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 option to be one of the three, it, you know, it imposed on women certain conservative roles, right? Certain certain behaviors. At the same time, Paul and I explored a number of historical examples and literary examples of women who took advantage of widowhood in particular, or who made of their married lives chaste marriages that allowed them new social freedoms and, and spiritual freedoms. So there are a number of wonderful examples from the woman who founded Clara College at Cambridge, who decided not to remarry, granted after her third husband, um, who decided not to remarry and became a patron of, of the arts, 
to artisan widows living in London who took over their husbands' businesses after they died and were not asked to remarry, um, to the widows who went to live at Barking Abbey in London, which was a, a community of, of aristocratic widows. And so we, we have these, these wonderful historical examples of people who I think took frequent advantage of these different roles and, and the escape that it actually afforded. And people who locate themselves in time and who say to themselves, what should this time of life be? And uh, there are many examples of, of people who uh, are driven by a sense of the whole life cycle to uh, seek self-improvement and change in a way that isn't always associated with the Middle Ages. I think in your book, it's not just people who have these ages, but it's also the world itself. So what were these stages and what were medieval people's understanding of where they were in these ages? Well, I think the thing to be said here is that there are various schemes of the ages of the world, which were uh, shared among medieval people. Some thought the world was in three ages and all thought themselves in the third age. Some thought it was in seven ages and all thought themselves in either the sixth or the seventh age. But uh, no matter what their system of time reckoning was, uh, everybody thought the world was near its end. And I think that's something that might not always be appreciated about the Middle Ages. We think of it in some ways as a a, a youthful and and on their best days, at least joyous uh, time in the in the progress of the world. But people in the Middle Ages thought they were living in very belatedly and in the last age of the world, and that time was about to end. And actually, I'd, I'd like to read one quotation uh, from our book, if I may, that uh, captures a sense of, of the belatedness of the world and the end of time. Let me dig it out here. Okay, this is a passage initially based on St. Jerome in the early Middle Ages, but that was very widespread and well-known in the Middle Ages. And Chaucer's Parson quotes this passage as part of the sermon with which he ends the Canterbury Tales. Uh, so here is Jerome, and here's the Parson speaking. He says, At every time that me remembereth of the day of doom, of every time that I think of the day of doom, I quake. For when I eat or drink, or whatso that I do, ever seemeth to me that the trumpet sounds in my ear. Rise up, you who are dead, and come to the judgment. That is this, this sense in which a sense of the end of the world and the end of time dogs the daily life and never really leaves uh, the person at, at any point in uh, their cycle of daily activities runs very deep in the Middle Ages, uh, much more so than we would suppose now. So why exactly did they think this? What signs did they look to to confirm uh, this? Well, that's something we might both talk about, but we've both been very interested in what could be called the signs of judgment, because in the Middle Ages, people would make up long lists of, okay, we know judgment is about to occur, and how do we know that it's about to occur? And uh, there were schemes like the 15 signs of judgment, uh, some of which might unnerve us a bit today, having to do with things like floods and forest fires and uh, signs of worldly disruption. But uh, people anxiously looked for these signs and 
saw some of these signs in their own daily lives. Uh, one thing, if we have more time, we might talk about is the, the uh, expectation of the arrival of Antichrist, uh, whose arrival on the planet would, would signal the nearness of the end of time. And uh, various people in the Middle Ages, uh, were uh, various public figures, were thought to be antichrists and to provide evidence of the fact that the world is uh, about to end because here we see the activities of this kind of mischievous and frightening being. Um, there's a temptation to look around you in the world and find uh, examples of antichrists among you, which uh, can be pursued in any age, I guess. I think one of the the tensions that we come up against is this sense that the, the end has to come, but that it's always delayed, right? That, that, that it never really comes. And this goes back to the broader way in which we periodize, because of course we call this period the Middle Ages, but this is a term, I mean, no one in the period thought they lived in the middle. This is something that, that Petrarch helps to encourage as he's trying to distance himself. Yeah, they all absolutely thought they lived very, very near the end, yeah. They, they do, and, and there is this, I've, I've always been struck by, the fear of death and the end, but also the sense that the end brings communion with God. And we see that that kind of paradox in a lot of the literature too. So can we say that it really dictated the way that they lived their lives? Very much so. There's a distinguished scholar named Frank Kermode once made a point about time. He said, there's a big difference between tick-tock and tick-tick. Uh, in tick-tick, everything just goes on indefinitely. But with tick-tock, you have closure. You have a sense of a beginning and end. And what that sense of closure does is prompt you to think in a different way about the middle. That is, how am I spending my time between the tick and the talk? How am I best arranging my life uh, in view of the fact that I know that the world and time will end? very deep sense of that in the Middle Ages. I think it's it's our sense of the end that then causes us to think about time, right? Um, if we knew that it was sort of endless, that it was eternal, then you, you don't really have a need for for time and keeping track of it. So it does seem to, that, that awareness of, of the end, the, the interest in the afterlife, I think it determines a lot of medieval ethics, what they thought a moral life looked like. Um, it also led figures like Boethius in the early 6th century to, to mull over the concept of fortune and the idea that the, the temporal world that we live in is changeable, right? Change is the constant. So, Paul, you mentioned the Antichrist. Who were they, and what role did they play? Well, Antichrist, and Antichrist is anticipated in the Bible. I won't go through the biblical passages, but Antichrist is uh, kind of an engaging trickster. I mean, that is, he's uh, kind of mischievously showing up and uh, making trouble for its own sake. And there was a an inclination within the world to look around and say, oh, well, Saladin, the Saracen, he must be the Antichrist, or, oh, this particular pope who I don't like must be the Antichrist. And uh, there was quite an active discourse uh, of the presence of Antichrist in the world, which is kind of ludicrous and comic, uh, but also expresses a good deal of fright and unease. 
And uh, I, I sometimes think in the world of today, that, as I say, that I uh, find myself looking around and making some of those kinds of identifications myself and, and experiencing fright and unease, but also amusement. Antichrist is a highly amusing figure, and uh, uh, there's never a dull moment with him. Uh, he does a lot of impersonation, a lot of trickster stuff, uh, fights his corner aggressively, and uh, I, I think he's a figure of a good deal of interest. I'm reminded of Dante's Inferno, where many of the diabolical figures aren't actually frightening, but they're buffoons. As a final question to you, what would you like our listeners to take away? What what resounding thought would you like to leave them with? I'll return to periodization and the problems with it. I think the the idea of the Renaissance as a rebirth, it tends to be associated with uh, uh, the creation of time consciousness with uh, an awareness of historical distance that we have established in our book really exists before, that there is there is such an, a sophisticated engagement with, with past temporalities um, and in creative and conscious ways. We've been trying to dispel that, that myth that there isn't that sort of awareness of, of time or of how past, present, and future relate to each other as categories. That was Gillian Adler and Paul Strome. Their book, All Thing Hath Time, Time and Medieval Life, is out now published by Reaction Books. And if you're intrigued by medieval timekeeping, then head over to BBC Sounds, where you can listen to a BBC Arts and Ideas episode on monks, models, and medieval time. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. 